Uh, praise God. I know just looking around, many of you were disappointed. You're used to seeing Ajay preaching up here. For those that uh, don't know, Ajay is really our uh, LeBron James of preaching. Um, I don't know if he can play basketball like LeBron James, and I don't think he can, but uh, you know, you're stuck with me today. I'm kind of like the Sean Bradley of preaching. But um, please stick with me as I share some things from my heart. You know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a man. His name was David Kellerman. David was 41 years old and a man of many talents and capabilities. He had risen to the height of his career. He became uh, the CFO of a large company called Freddie Mac, and he was well-respected. He was very capable. He had really reached all of his worldly goals and ambitions. But when the financial crisis hit, something happened. All of a sudden, his reputation came into question, his job came into question, and the stress began to mount day after day. So much so that one day his wife found him dead in, in their basement. And it wasn't because of a home invasion. It wasn't because of illness. He had hung himself and, and left this world, leaving his family to pick up the pieces. And there's another individual. His name is Barry Fox, who was 51. He was also a hardworking, well-respected, well-liked individual that worked his way up through corporate America to become the managing director at Bear Stearns. He was one of those individuals, his coworkers said, that showed up every morning at 8.30 and worked until the sun went down. He rarely took breaks uh, for lunch, let alone even water. And this is a man that was driven and motivated, and he did extremely well. By all means, it looked like he had everything his heart could desire. And then one day, when the financial crisis occurred, Bear Stearns went bankrupt, and J.P. Morgan swept in and picked up the pieces. They offered jobs to a few people, but they didn't offer a job to Barry Fox. He immediately was devastated by this news, and he decided to overdose on drugs. He climbed up to a window sill on the 29th floor of his apartment and leapt out, and he was gone. What happened to these men? Why is it that these men decided to take their lives when it seemed like they had everything? Was it simply because they lost their jobs? Was it simply because they no longer had that lofty title? I think it was much, much more than that. When this event occurred in their life, they were overcome with not just sorrow, but with complete and utter despair. The type of despair that only comes when you lose what means most in your life. The type of despair that only comes when you lose that very essence of thing that gave you meaning and hope and peace. You know, a French historian correctly pointed out that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And that this type of despair comes when the incomplete joys of this world, when you build your entire life around the incomplete joys of this world. That is what happened to these men. They built their entire lives, they built their joy, their satisfaction, their security, their trust around the incomplete joys of this world. And when that was gone, they were left with nothing. I'd like to submit for you that this is the definition of idolatry. You know, we've spent the last few uh, months preaching on 1 John, and we've talked about what it means to be an authentic Christian. But today, I'd like to really look at that last few words of the scripture. 1 John 5.21 simply says, Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. You know, as I read through Tom Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, it really helped me put this topic into perspective. Some of you may be thinking, well, if Dennis is preaching on idols, I can tune out because that's one thing I've got under control. You know, you, you may call me many things, but an idol worshiper is something I am not. But I'd like for you to hang on with me for a few minutes so that we can really talk through and understand what does it mean to worship idols? What is an idol worshiper? What are idols that can be in our lives? You know, when I say idols, many of you think of prehistoric or ancient cultures, and you think of people bowing down to statues. Others of you may think of, uh, that are familiar with the Old Testament, may think of the golden calf. You guys, uh, many may remember that story when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he brought them into the wilderness, and they came to the mountainside. And when Moses went into that mountain and he delayed in coming back, they decided to build a golden calf and worship that calf. You know, others may think of India, and others may yet think of uh, religions like Hinduism. But I'd like to tell you that, idol, that John is not just focused on that type of idol worship. He was focused on much more. I'd like to submit for you today that idol worship is just as prevalent today here in the United States as it is in India and those that practice the religion of Hinduism. I'd like to submit for you today that idol worship is just as prevalent in this city, in this community, and in our midst as it was when the children of Israel were worshiping that golden calf. You know, our idols are no longer these stone statues, but we have turned the things of life into our idols, our careers, our jobs, our families, our children, our loved ones, feeling respected, social causes, political causes, even Christian ministry, we have turned into the idols of our day. You may be asking yourself, man, Dennis is being harsh. All of the things, every single thing that Dennis just mentioned is actually a good thing. And I want to tell you that in and of themselves, they are great things. They are wonderful things. But when they take precedence in our heart over God, they become idols in our lives. Idol worship looks a little different and takes a slightly different form today. But please do not be mistaken that these things can become idols in our lives. So today I'd like for us to think through in an honest, bitterly honest way, what are the idols that are in our lives? As I prepared for this message and as I spent time reading and meditating and praying, you know, I sent Ajay a text and I said, Ajay, this, this message is working me over because it is hugely convicting and it is challenging my soul and it is changing and transforming me because I'm thinking about idols in a way that I've never thought of before. And I'd ask and pray that you do the same for a few minutes today. You know, we're going to look at the dangers of idols. We're going to look at Abraham and how he was able to gain victory over idols. And finally, we'll understand how the gospel help, will help us gain victory. So first, we have to ask ourselves, what is an idol? An idol is really anything that is more important to us than God. What does that mean? It's anything that absorbs our hearts and our thoughts and our imaginations more than God and anything that we look to give us only what God can give us. Anything that we seek after to give us only what God can give us. These idols have such a controlling position in our lives that we will spend almost any amount of money, time, 
resources, energy on them. There is no cost that is too high when that idol comes into play. An idol is anything that is so central that we will do anything without any concern of the ramifications of our actions. What does that mean? It means that that idol is so large in our hearts that no matter what we do, that ramification has no comparison to that idol. It can be our careers, it can be our children, it can be our families, it can be achievement or critical acclaim, it can be our social standing, maybe it's a romantic relationship, it can be our beauty or our intellect, things, Jim, I know you don't need to worry about. It can be uh, even success in Christian ministry. All of these things, all of a sudden, can take the form of idols in our hearts. I want you to understand that an idol is whatever we look at and say, if I have that, then I will have meaning in life. If I have that, then I will feel significant. Then I will feel secure. Then I will feel like I've attained something in life. That is what an idol is. I want us to think through a few different things. How is it that these idols can be so destructive? How is it that these good things, which in and of themselves are wonderful, can take this type of position in our hearts? For example, loving our children is a good thing. Our children are good things, at least most of the time, and loving them is even more wonderful. But then when our children, love, wanting the best for our children is a wonderful thing, but if all of our self-worth and if all of our happiness is wrapped up in our children, it can be incredibly destructive. If all of our happiness and self-worth are made up of our children getting good grades, or getting into, or, or making the basketball team, or doing well in sports, we will not be able to love them well. We may become overly angry at them when they disappoint us, because you know time and time again, because they are human, they will disappoint us. We may be begin to over-discipline them because we want them to be perfect. We may begin to under-discipline them because we don't want them to, we don't want to disappoint them. Our entire meaning and purpose in life will be wrapped up in their success and in their security. This puts a tremendous amount of pressure on us and them. We cannot love them well if we have made them an idol in our lives. Similarly, wanting success, a successful career is a good thing. All of you will say that is a wonderful thing to do, and we should always do our best, and we should always work hard, and our employers should view us as valuable employees, capable individuals, those that they can count on, those that are in line for advancements and promotions. But if all of our meaning and all of our hope and all of our joy are tied up in that next promotion, then we are making our careers into idols. And that becomes extremely dangerous. And then you have to ask yourself, are you going to be willing to compromise your integrity? Are you going to be willing to put down and tear down other people? Are you going to be willing to compromise God's word if you have elevated this into an idol? What is it today that we have made into idols? Why does this happen? This happens because these idols take such a prominent place in our heart. We begin to love them. We begin to trust them. We begin to obey them. Everything we do is wrapped up around these idols. 
You know, when we love these things, the things of this world more than God, we are actually committing spiritual adultery. You know, could you imagine if we spent all of our days uh, fantasizing and imagining about someone other than our spouse? The Bible clearly states that that is adultery. And similarly, if we spend all of our days and all of our time imagining and fantasizing about the things of this world, the word says that we are committing spiritual adultery because we, the church, are his bride and he is our bridegroom. And so we need to examine our hearts and think about what are the things we spend daydreaming about? What are the things that we, our hearts spend longing for? You know, this was hugely convicting to me because if I'm honest, I began to analyze and assess what are the things that I daydream and fantasize about? You know, the days are so busy and there's a little, little time to, to daydream and fantasize. And as I was reading and studying, I was thinking, I don't even have time to daydream. I don't even have time to fantasize about these things. But then I was convicted because when I am, the, the few times I do have an opportunity is when I'm at the gym and I'm, I get lost in my thoughts and I start thinking about uh, my job and family and, and the next BTC event and I'll start shooting off emails, you know, one brilliant idea after the next because that's when all those great ideas come. Um, but then I had to admit that every now and then I start to think about, man, I can't wait for that next promotion. I can't wait for that next opportunity to advance my career. And my thoughts just start to stray about what would it mean if I was uh, elevated to this level and what would it mean if I'm able to get promote this type of promotion. And I realized I really need to be very, very careful here because this career can become an idol. You know, the folks in my job that uh, in, my, in my workplace that are willing to move are able to advance in their careers. And so if I stop trusting in God and start trusting in myself and my career becomes my God, all of a sudden I'm going to be willing to do anything and everything to get to that next promotion. And so, I, I, you know, the thought has occurred to me, hey, maybe I should start to move. You know, why am I here? I should start to look at senior leadership roles all throughout the country and figure out how I'm going to make that next step. If you talk to senior leaders in my company, they've moved 10, 15, 20 times in their lives. But if I'm honest with myself, I know that God has called me to be here and my family to be here. They, he's called us to be in Philadelphia and to minister at Seven Mile Road and to do this work. But if I were to make my career my idol, none of that would matter. And I'd be on the first plane to Chicago, to Seattle, whatever it took to get to that next position and that next career, uh, career advancement. The question I have to ask is, do I love God or do I love my career? You know, our hearts not only love our idols, we trust our, our hearts trust in our idols more than we trust in God in himself. We trust that these idols will give us peace and joy and security and that we can identify them by looking at our nightmares. I want us to think through what are the things that we fear the most? What are the things that scare us and that if we lost, we would lose our entire meaning in life? If we lost our job, if we lost our child, if we lost our social standing, what are those things that keep us up night after night after night? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is family, and in particular, uh, my father, who's battling with cancer. And I shared in the last elder track, and I was very open, and I said, you know, brothers, I don't know what's going to happen. 
if my father were to lose his battle with cancer. I don't know if I'm going to become over, overwhelmed with sorrow if our, or if I'm going to be overwhelmed with complete and utter despair. And this is something I need to address. And this is something I need prayer about. You know, are we trusting in God for that peace and joy? Or are we trusting in our jobs? Are we trusting in our families? Are we trusting in our children? If we were to lose any one of those things, would all of your meaning in life disappear? That is the question we have to ask. So in addition to loving these idols, in addition to trusting these idols, you know, our hearts obey our idols. You know, God should be our only Lord and Master, but whatever we love and whatever we trust, we are going to obey, no questions asked. We are ready. And anything that becomes more important to, to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. How do we identify these types of idols? I want you to ask yourself, what triggers our strongest emotion? What makes us incredibly mad or incredibly sad or incredibly anxious? What is it that really makes us go off the deep end? That is the idol that is in our heart that we obey. You know, this really helped me think about idols in a whole different way. You know, the people that knew, knew me growing up uh, know that I, have, uh, I had a little bit of a temper. And so growing up, uh, that manifested itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, people on the football field uh, may have experienced some of that anger, uh, unnecessary anger a lot of times. Um, you know, there are, are chairs in the Willow Grove Mall food court that have inadvertently experienced that anger, uh, but that's a, really a story for another place and another time. Um, but by the grace of God, the gospel has really helped me uh, work on my anger and improve on my anger, so much so that uh, people at work and people outside of work have said, hey, Dennis is a, a laid-back individual. He's really uh, calm when it comes to times of stress, and uh, he, he's loud and he yells a lot, but in general, he's a pretty uh, level-headed person. But there's something that I noticed that was, that was off, and this, this preparing for this message really helped me understand. Um, over the last, I don't know what it is, 12 to 18 months, there was something that makes me so mad. There is something that really just sets me off the edge the same way I used to get angry back when uh, growing up. And that's when I feel like someone has disrespected me. If I feel like someone has disrespected me, I become just as angry as I used to become when I was growing up. And so it could be anything. It could be, hey, I called you and you took too long to call me. And it just sets something off in me. Or you could have disagreed with me in a meeting in front of other people and I didn't like the way you disagreed with me. And so I'm gonna retaliate now. And I don't care about the ramifications. Um, or it could be even something as simple as getting my name wrong. Uh, there was a consultant that I hired, and in the period of 24 hours, he got my name wrong three times. So you can tell I'm still a little annoyed by that. <laughs> even after they told him that my name was not Matthew, it is Dennis, he still called me Matthew. And I reacted in a very negative way. You know, why is it that something so small should make me react in this harsh, harsh way? It's because 
we obey our idols and we stop obeying God. We begin to love our idols, we begin to trust our idols, and we begin to obey our idols. And as I looked into my life, I found that feeling respected and wanting to be respected was becoming an idol in my life. You know, I want us to think through an individual in the Bible that will really help us bring this scripture to life, and that his name is Abraham. You know, a great way for us to understand the scripture is to look at how Abraham dealt with his idols. You know, Abraham was in danger of falling into idolatry, but ultimately he was victorious. If we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we see that God asked Abraham to leave everything that is near and dear to his heart and makes an incredible promise. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, he was asked to give up everything in life. He was asked to give up his family, his friends, all of his material uh, possessions, and to just leave and go and obey God's word. And the one thing that he was given was a, ho a glimmer of hope and that he would have a child. You see, biologically, Sarah was unable to conceive at that point. But the promise was that he would become a great nation, and that he, the nations would be blessed through his offspring. And so days became months, and months became years, and years became decades. And finally, after Abraham was over 100 years old, we see that, um, we see that Sarah had a child, and his name was Isaac. And the name Isaac means laughter because they were both incredibly happy, but then also uh, it was difficult for them to believe that God would actually ever fulfill this promise. And so what do we see happen to Abraham over this period of time? You know, he, one, his faith began to grow and his faith was refined and he began to believe and trust in God more and more over the years. But the other thing that happened was that there was, he began to long and want for a son more than anyone else in the world. The one thing that he wanted more than anything else and anyone else was to have a son. And so this son would prove that to the people in the community that he wasn't crazy, that he didn't pick up and leave for no reason, but that God had fulfilled his promise. And so now the question is, had he been waiting, had he been sacrificing for God, or had he really been sacrificing simply to have this son? Was God just a means to an end? You know, the story could have ended with the birth of Isaac. We see that he was born. We see that God trusted. We see that over the span of decades, Abraham held strong, and he finally had that child. But God calls on Abraham one more time. And in Genesis 22, 2, it says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him up there as a burnt offering, on one of the mountains which I shall tell you." Now this was the ultimate test for Abraham because Isaac was everything to him. You know, God re even refers to Isaac as the son, the only son in whom you love. You know, previously Abraham's meaning in life was trusting in God's word and waiting for the promise and he was just waiting year after year trusting in God. But now his whole life was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and Isaac's well-being and making sure that Isaac had everything in life. The center of Abraham's life 
was shifting, and it was no longer God, but it was becoming Isaac. But God was, say, God was not saying, you can't love your son. That is not the message. God is not saying, don't love Isaac. But God is saying, you cannot love your son more than you love me. What do we see happens? Abraham immediately obeys. He leaves, and he begins to climb up that mountain. And I can't even imagine the emotions and the feelings and, the, and the, maybe the pain that he was feeling as he began to march up that mountain. But we find in Genesis 22, verses 9 through 13, when they came to that place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But just at that moment, God calls out to Abraham, 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 do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. So what was this test all about? I want us to think about two things. One, which Abraham was likely fully aware of, was that he understood that he needed to love God supremely. He needed to love God more than he loved Isaac or more than he loved his family or more than he loved his uh, position in the community. And he showed that he loved God with all of his heart. Abraham and God now knew that he, Abraham, loved God wholeheartedly. God, of course, knew Abraham loved, loved him, but God wanted to put Abraham through the fire so that his love would come forth as pure gold. If God had not intervened, Abraham would likely have come to love Isaac more than any of these other things, including God himself. And that would have ultimately destroyed Abraham and Isaac. You know, as we discussed before, Abraham may have begin, begun to over-discipline or under-discipline. Abraham may have begun to uh, become extremely disappointed. All of Abraham's love and joy and security and peace would have rested on Isaac, which would have crushed both Abraham and Isaac. But because he climbed into this mountain, because he offered up what he loved most to God, he can now love Isaac well. He can now love Isaac the way God called him to love him. Abraham's joy and identity can, could not be wrapped up in Isaac, but was wrapped up now in God. And this long walk up that mountain helped him become the man who he is today one of the greatest figures in history. But what else was this incident about? We see that God's love and grace allowed for a substitute. And at that point in time, the substitute was a ram. But is that ram really enough to pay the debt of our sins? And that answer is no. You know, hundreds of years later, we find that in that same mountain, there was another firstborn that was laid out to die on that altar but in this case, that same son, Jesus Christ, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this time, there is no voice from heaven. There is no one that comes to the rescue. But instead, God, the Father, pays that price in silence. He doesn't say a word. And he allows his son to die that you and I may live. The true substitute for Abraham's son was God's only son, Jesus Christ. 
and he's the one that was able to bear the punishment that we deserve. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So Abraham, by offering up Isaac, was able to gain victory over his idols. And so now that leaves us with the question, how can we gain victory over the idols in our lives? Have we identified first what those idols are? Are there things that capture our imaginations more than God? Are there things that we trust in more than God? Are there things that evoke emotion, whether that be anger or agony or depression? What are those things that we are holding up as idols in our lives? Well, we can gain victory, or we can gain victory over those Isaacs in our lives or those things that are becoming Isaacs by offering them back up to God. And I'm sure many of you may have a, a reaction of, oh, this is all about what we have to give back to God, and this is all about the sacrifices we need to make. But I'm saying that's not what this is all about at all. I'm saying that we are actually gaining everything by offering up these lesser things, and that we can actually gain joy and fulfillment and peace and security by offering up these lesser things to God. When we offer up these lesser things, we gain the greater thing that only God can give us. We gain those things that we are seeking from these lesser things, but we will never achieve. But if we offer them up to God, he will give that, give that to us. You know, God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. But how much more can we now say, God, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only son from us, whom you love. You know, when we truly understand the magnitude of what he did, it makes it possible for us to offer up these lesser things to him. When we truly understand the sacrifice that was made, when we truly understand what God gave to us, offering up these lesser things becomes trivial and becomes simple and easy. You know, I'm asking that we as a church today walk up the same mountain Abraham walked and offer up our Isaacs to him. Some of the most painful times in life is when we offer our Isaacs either willingly or unwillingly. You know, when God asks us to give him the things that we cherish the most, we can respond in one of two ways. We can either respond by becoming uh, depressed and despondent. We can respond by moving into full depression and despair. Or we can respond like Abraham and say, I see you are calling me to live without something that I've cherished for so long. But I can do that because I have all of the love and the health and the wealth and the security that I need in you. You know, these lesser things many times can stay in our lives, but they can only stay once we've demoted them below God in our hearts. Once we've done that, once we've offered them up, they will no longer enslave us. So I'm asking that we look to him and we rejoice in the awesome work that he has done on the cross. And in that way, we'll be able to offer up our idols to him as well. May God bless you. Let's pray in response to the Lord's word.
Father, we would ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit now to receive and respond to your word, that the Holy Spirit himself might minister to us in conviction, showing us that which we have placed over and above you. And show to us, open our eyes to see that that which we trust in pales in comparison with you. And that by giving them to you, we gain that which is greater, which is you yourself. We need a work of the Holy Spirit to convince our hearts that you are of a greater treasure, of greater worth and value than the things that we currently hold to. And we need your also your Holy Spirit to show us that these things we trust in will become slave masters that do not satisfy when you are in turn a good master and Lord who does satisfy. We do thank you for Christ, for we now know how much you love us because you did not spare your only son, but gave him up for us all. How much more then can we trust you with all things? We do thank you for your word and ask that it would have an effect on each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.